Well, it's good to see you all this morning. Now, we've been looking for the last several weeks at the concepts of baptism and New Covenant community, uh, but I'm excited for us to come back now to our study of John's Gospel, so I'll invite you to be opening with me to the Gospel of John this morning. Uh, we'll be in chapter 18, but as we're starting, I'll, I'd like us to look first at chapter 13 for just a moment. Uh, we need to remember some of the things that have led up to the events that we're going to read and consider together this morning. Coming into chapter 18 means we've just finished the very large section of chapters 13 to 17. This is what we call Jesus' farewell discourse. We have been in that section, I look back, since mid-January, and it's almost sad for us to leave it because there has just been so much that we've heard from our Lord as he's comforted his people, as he's equipped and prepared them for what's about to come. But it's been a long time. And so I want us to start by just re reorienting our, our sense of the timeline here, because for Jesus and his disciples, all of that has been a single instance of extended instruction, hasn't it? It's been an evening. Um, and we need to remember as we're beginning this morning that it all kicked off with an explanation that we hear in John 13, the first three verses. And we read this. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He, he has perceived what we hear about in verse 1, that the hour has come. At long last, it's time. And so he has both comforted and prepared his disciples. He's prayed for them. But that's finished now as we come into chapter 18. Now it's time. And so you can be coming over to chapter 18. And the question that we started with this morning is, now that he's finished those final preparations with those whom he has loved, how do we see Jesus move as he comes into his hour? I would suggest that that's maybe the central aspect that's being held out to us in these first 12 verses that we'll look at this morning. The question of how Jesus moved, how he approached the task that was before him. I say that because John gives it all to us here in a way that unmistakably emphasizes the masculine, regal boldness of our king as he strides toward this hour that has now come. So let's read the first 12 verses here of John 18. Um, what we're about to hear, this is what's coming. The first three verses, you're going to hear a scene being set that's obviously supposed to be daunting. Don't let yourself know what's coming and escape the intensity of the situation in those first three verses. So we'll see the scene set in verses 1 to 3. In verse 4, we will see Jesus respond to that scene. And in verses 5 to 12, we'll see the scene's response to him. 
that is not the outline we're going to use to walk through this, but that's what's coming here. That's what you're about to hear. We're going to approach the passage by looking at all of it through the lens of that boldness that our Lord displays. And specifically, we'll see this morning three sources of Jesus' boldness that the text gives us in his response to this mob. John 8, verses 1 to 12, I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. If you're able, would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook, Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, Let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Three sources of the boldness that we see here in Jesus. Three sources that are given to us in the text itself. The first is knowledge. Jesus' knowledge of the circumstances is a significant part of how John is explaining to us the incredible confidence that we see put on display here. And we find that in the first four verses because John has really taken care to depict the scene for us like it would have been experienced by any one of us if we had been there that night. And it's very well done. Every element that he introduces increases the tension higher and higher. We learn in the first two verses of a trap. Uh, There's a setup in place. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. It's given to us in a way that in normal circumstances would be one of those little-did-they-know kinds of moments. They're going out to rest and to pray, 
Little did they know that Judas knew where they were going to be. Danger is brewing. You can hear it in the way John is giving this to us. The tension in the plot is increasing. And verse 3 develops it further. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons, swords and clubs. It's what the Synoptic Gospels describe to us. Judas has gathered a mob. But it's not a mob of hooligans. It's a mob bearing authority. It's a mob bearing both, you notice, the authority of the state and the authority of the religious powers. Roman soldiers are there. Officers of the Jewish leadership are there. This is a particular role that was played, this, these officers of the high priests. Uh, we've seen them before. They, these are the same officers that were sent back in chapter 7 to arrest Jesus. And you remember then, they came back to the chief priests empty-handed, and they were asked then, why did you not bring him? You remember their answer? No one ever spoke like this man. But they're back now. Uh, it's a situation full of details that make us, or would make us, fear for Jesus' safety. It's not a good situation. And so we're surprised to find then in verse 4, or maybe not so surprised, but we are meant to be surprised, that when Jesus responds to this, he responds with no fear whatsoever. His, his response, in fact, is full, brimming with confidence. And verse 4 tells us a part of the reason for that. It says that Jesus responds to this situation, quote, knowing all that would happen to him. Literally what it says is, knowing all that was coming upon him. This is the reaction of a man who is completely unsurprised by what's taking place. And so as this mob approaches him, we find our Lord responding with boldness, in part because he is responding from a place of knowledge. In fact, a place of perfect knowledge of what's happening. But you and I know from our own experience that that can only be, at best, a part of the explanation for what we're seeing. Knowledge does not always produce boldness, does it? There are a whole host of events that can come upon us with our full knowledge well in advance that we greet with anything but confidence or boldness. A dangerous surgery does not inspire confidence in us just because it's scheduled a month in advance and the details are explained to us. Some of you younger guys in here may more recently know the experience of seeing that really important, difficult exam coming at the end of the quarter or at the end of the semester. Uh, and all that, that, for me, all that that used to do was just extend my anxiety and even increase it because now there's a countdown and I see it coming. Very often when our hour comes in a situation like this, our response doesn't look like confidence. It looks like shrinking away. So why is it then as they as this group emerges from the darkness in verse 4 with torches and swords, why is it that Jesus comes forward, that he meets and confronts them? 
This knowledge of the situation is a piece of what we're told about. But there's more that we're told. We're also told that we're seeing boldness here in our Lord stemming not just from knowledge, but stemming from, in fact, complete control over the circumstances. Not just knowledge of the circumstances, but complete control over them. This group who is coming and approaching the Lord thinks that they have been in a situation like this before. They're good at this. They know the potential obstacles that they may encounter. They're tracking a man down. And he's popular, so this is going to be controversial. Better surprise him at night. But then he's going to have the darkness on his side. It will make it easier for him to hide. So we better bring torches and lanterns. Sometimes when they try to hide, they try to escape, things can go south. We need to bring our weapons. Cornered dogs tend to bite. They're ready for what might come. This is not their first rodeo. But as they come to the place that they're told to find him, they find that he comes out and meets them. Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward. This is not what they're expecting. He comes forward and he asks them, whom do you seek? Even from the beginning, even verbally, Jesus takes control over the situation immediately. You can see them on the defensive in the entire exchange. But the control that he is exhibiting here goes way beyond verbal control of the conversation. Verses 5 and 6, we see something altogether different. And I, the more I've thought about this, the more I wonder if this might be one of the more underappreciated elements in, in maybe the entire Gospel of John, what we see here. It says, they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. It's interesting to translate what's said there as they drew back. I don't know if it's just me, but to me, Translating it that way makes it sound like a calculated move on their part. It was clearly no calculated move on their part. And there are words to use to get that kind of thing across. There are verbs like depart or uh, withdraw. Literally what John says here is that at the statement by our Lord, they went backward and fell to the ground. Now, some things about that are, are clear and some things are a bit unclear. What's clear is that at Jesus' words, the bodies in this group moved in the opposite direction and they fell down to the ground. Now, some of them may have been some more clumsy individuals. That's always possible in a group. Some of them were Roman soldiers, trained. This is not what we're, what we're being told about here is not a thought-through, calculated reversal of motion. It's, whatever it is, it's sudden. Can you hear it? It's sudden, it's unexpected, it's jarring to them. This, is, this much is clear. What is a little bit less clear is why they did it. Some suggestions have been made. It could be a bit unclear, but I do think that there's sufficient warrant to make a suggestion about this. 
A few have tried to suggest that what they did in, in this motion is simply a reaction to Jesus' use of the divine formula, the divine name. He responded to them with two words, ego a me, I am. This is the divine name used in the Old Testament to, where God names himself. Uh, and so some have suggested, well, when he spoke those words, there was, this is such a significant thing to say that it was an, almost an act of reverence that there would be this physical reaction. But that can't explain what we see here at all on, a, on multiple fronts. It wouldn't explain why any Roman soldiers who know little or nothing about Jewish religion, certainly care little or nothing about it, would do this. But it also wouldn't explain the reaction on the part of the Jews involved there either. It's not as if there's a religious custom that they have to fall down when the divine name is uttered. You remember Jesus has taken this name to himself now several times in John's gospel without any such reaction. Uh, and in fact, at the end of chapter 8, he made his most unambiguous claim to the divine name like this. Uh, and nobody went down except to reach down and grab stones to try to throw at him. So a, a religious reverence response to these words does not explain what happened here. Uh, some suggest that simply what happened is there's a surprising uh, this, is, this is what happens when you are surprised as you're moving. His boldness in the dark like this caught them off guard so that they simply stumbled backward and bumped into each other and wound up knocking the entire group down at the same time. And we know that a group of humans can do that if there's a bowling pin arrangement. Things happen sometimes. But even that does not at all fit the description that we're given here in, in the context, and in particular because of the end of verse 5. Now, verse 5 creates two problems for that suggestion. And it's interesting because it's a, it seems like a pretty random statement for John to include. Did it feel like that to you? Verse 4, Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus said to them, I am he. And then all of a sudden you have this statement about where Judas happened to be standing. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. That seems a bit random to be, include, to be included here. Uh, but it actually adds a couple of things to this picture. One of the things it adds is this. It makes clear to us that this group was not marching boldly forward and had Jesus suddenly jump out of the dark and scare them. They had approached, Jesus had addressed them, and at that point, a conversation is now in process. They are standing there, conversing. They have, they, they have in fact, taken up positions. You have Jesus and his disciples standing together. You have the mob standing together. And Judas does not position himself with Jesus and the disciples, but instead with the crowd. So when, when Jesus says, I am he... They are not in a forward motion that is suddenly reversed by his words. They're standing still. You see that? Now, if they're standing still, and if his statement wouldn't automatically invoke a fall-down response, then again, why are they going down? The answer that I'm persuaded by 
also explains why there's value in telling us where Judas was standing. The answer that I would suggest to you is that John is telling us here about a display of divine miraculous power. Jesus spoke these words, and in speaking these words, power goes forth from him such that they are brought to the ground physically. This is how many have understood the event historically, from Augustine in the 4th century to J.C. Ryle in the 19th century, many others. I mention them because I want to share a couple of things that they say about this. First, let me read to you at length here. This is a bit long, but it's worth it. Listen to what J.C. Ryle says in his comment on this event. The Roman soldiers, especially, knew nothing about our Lord and had no cause to fear him. The only reasonable account of the event is that it was a miracle. It was an exercise for the last time of that same divine power by which our Lord calmed the waves, stilled the winds, cast out devils, healed the sick, and raised the dead. And it was a miracle purposely wrought at this juncture in order to show the disciples and their enemies that our Lord was not taken because he could not help it, or crucified because he could not prevent it, but because he was willing to suffer. and die for sinners. He came to be a willing sufferer for our sin, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. The effect of the miraculous influence put forth by our Lord seems to have been that the party who came to seize him were for a little time struck down to the ground, like men struck down but not killed by lightning, and rendered so helpless that our Lord and his disciples might easily have escaped. How long they lay on the ground, we are not told. But there certainly seems to be some pause at the end of the verse. Enough so, you notice, that Jesus has to reinstigate the questioning all over again, which I have always found very comical. Ryle continues, It seems clear to me that the miracle saved the disciples from being taken prisoners, and so far awed the party of Judas that they were satisfied to seize our Lord only and either intentionally let the eleven go, or in their fear of some further display of miraculous power, neglected them and gave them time to escape. That it also made, listen to this, that it also made the whole party of Judas without excuse is equally clear. They could never say that they had no evidence of our Lord's divine power. They had felt it in their own persons. End quote. And what a way for Judas to exit this gospel. This is the last we will hear of him. No account is given in John of his remorse, his suicide. The last thing we see of Judas is his personal experience of the absolute controlling power possessed by the one that he has chosen to betray. And so we see the scene set here, Jesus standing in absolute knowledge and absolute control over this circumstance, standing over his enemies. And I would have us linger there for a moment. 
We have more to see in this text. But we need to linger on this side of the Lord Jesus Christ. His arrest and crucifixion are now at hand. He is standing before the authorities of his day in perfect boldness, with perfect knowledge, and with such authority and power that he completely controls the situation. Can you see it? They have come to get him, and yet they are the ones being confronted. And by the very words of this son of David that we see here, we, we see David's psalm that Chance read to us earlier, Psalm 27, played out, in fact, in live-action performance. You remember what he read to us? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. This is what we can see. And for, for any over all the years who have read this story, the question has to come to their minds, who is this man? Who is this? Be reminded this morning, the answer to that question is so profound that we are actually right to bow down and worship him. That's a, how profound is the answer to the question, who is this? This is the God-man. This is our eternal God taken to human flesh. Come to rescue his people. Come to rescue all those who are humbled before him. Come to stare down to the ground every one of his enemies. And we see demonstrated in just one instance here the fate of all those who will refuse to obey the Psalm 2 command. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. It is true what the scriptures tell us. Every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And of course, what's emphasized in that prophetic statement is not simply the confession and the, the, the bowing of God's people to their Lord. It is the confessing, the admitting and bowing of God's enemies before the conquering king. I used to picture that moment in a way that I, I guess I don't picture it anymore. I used to picture it as two, two groups gathered before the king, his people, his children, bowing the knee and confessing with joy that Jesus Christ is Lord, and then his enemies forced to admit the fact, hating it. And the way I used to envision it was with a row of angelic officers behind them, kicking their legs at that point and forcing them down to the ground. But you see this event here and you realize there's no angelic kick necessary. At the word of Jesus, they will all fall. They won't be able to stand. And my friends, if, if all of this be true, then you are blessed if this becomes what we're seeing 
in our minds right now, if this becomes a moment of realization, maybe a realization for the first time in your life, or maybe something that you have been shown by the Lord, you've come to realize this, and it's maybe just been a bit too long since you have returned to this place in your thinking. This man is seated now in heaven with all authority in heaven and earth granted to him. This man has sworn to come again. You will face him. You will bow before him one day in your future. Maybe later tonight. Maybe years from now. But the fact of his promise means that it is as sure as if it's already happened. That's an appointment on your Google calendar that is set in stone. You have no administrative rights over the setting of that to go in and delete it. It is absolute. And it's fixed. Every day that goes by brings you closer to it. And I would just urge you this morning not to sweep away from your mind the question, how is this man factored into my existence, into my life? This is not one who is squeezed in when there's time. To come to grips with, to come to grips with the existence of this man is to come to grips with the fact that you are owned. You are not your own. You are a created thing, and you've just encountered the one for whose pleasure and honor and service you were ever brought into existence to begin with. You've encountered the one that is the reason for which you have been made. And in that way, then, what we've seen so far this morning are not just two reasons for Jesus' boldness that night. We've seen two reasons why every truly sane person, it's right what they say, sin is insanity. We've seen here two, two reasons why every truly sane person runs to Jesus Christ, not away from him. What are those two reasons? To run to him. He knows everything. He knows everything there is to know about you. There is no hiding from him. There's nowhere to go. It's too late. He knows everything about you. And knowing everything about you, he reaches out to you in love today, offering forgiveness, offering healing, offering reconciliation. He says today is the day of salvation. He knows all things and still he is willing to save you. He knows all things. And he operates, this man, operates with complete control which means he is utterly trustworthy. He is the one, the only one, who is able perfectly to keep his promises. My friends, having seen the Lord in his word today like this, how would you brush him off? How would you not hit the pause button of your whole life and run to him today if you have not? He is not one to be off. He is not one to be trifled with. Do not trifle with one such as this. 
There's one last explanation that we should see here in our text for the boldness that our Lord puts on display here in the Garden of Gethsemane. We've seen knowledge and control, perfect knowledge, in fact, and perfect control. The third thing that we see, and this is in verses 7 to 12 in particular, we see a profound awareness of purpose. Jesus' boldness stems from his own clear sense of his purposes. And that relationship between an awareness of purpose and boldness makes a great deal of sense to us. We experience that ourselves, don't we? It's amazing how much more boldly we can act in a situation, how much more quickly we can step forward when we are filled with an awareness of our purpose. Look at verses 7 to 12. In fact, let me start with verse 6. Let's hear these again. Actually, 6 to 11. <laughs> Excuse me. Verse 6, when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? We find very clearly stated for us here, Jesus' purpose in this confrontation. The most direct way it's expressed here is to say that he is putting their attention inescapably on himself, isn't he? And in a way so as to rescue his disciples. His purpose is not hard to see. Even as we're thinking about purpose, though, still, the knowledge and control components just continue to bleed through. It's astounding the knowledge and control that he's showing in this piece as well. Think about what he's doing. Jesus knows his disciples, doesn't he? He knows what they are capable of at this point. He knows what he is calling them to in their future. He knows what they're able to handle now. Even after his resurrection, he's going to tell them, wait in the city until I send the promise of my Father upon you and you're clothed with power from on high. He knows the needs of his sheep and he protects them. One man wrote very uh, eloquently, he said, our Lord watches tenderly over every one of his children and like a wise physician measures out the right quantity of their trials with unerring skill. In the darkest hour, the eye of the Lord Jesus is upon us and our final safety is sure. Those are words that we need to hear today, aren't they? Verse 9 is very helpful here even though it can be a little confusing as well. What John does for us in verse 9 is to draw a line between Jesus' ability to protect his disciples physically and his ability to protect them at all, his ability to protect them ultimately. He points out this was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. It's not been long since we heard that. That was just the last chapter when Jesus was praying to the Father. And we could tell then when he prayed that to the Father, he wasn't speaking in a simply physical way, was he? 
But what we're finding here with this fulfillment in verse 9 is not the substituting of physical protection uh, for eternal salvation. We're, we're having pointed out to us that his ability and his effectiveness in protecting them physically here are in fact an illustration, even a symbolizing of his commitment to protect them utterly to the end. And that's exactly what happens, isn't it? They take Jesus, they leave the disciples. There does seem to have been some degree of scuffle in the midst of this, right after Peter cuts off Malchus's ear. That's fairly uh, easy to understand. When you have Roman soldiers and suddenly someone draws a sword on them and hacks off a, a body part, there's, they're not going to... They're, 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 quite dumbfounded here, but they're not so dumbfounded that they cannot move or react. And we do hear uh, from, from the Gospel of Mark that it was at that point that one of the soldiers does try to grab somebody close to him. It wasn't one of the 11. It was a young man. It might have been Mark himself. And you remember the fairly comical scene. That man slips out of his cloak and runs naked off into the night. I've always really enjoyed that, that story. So there is some scuffle after the man's ear is chopped off. But Jesus promptly puts the ear back on, undoes the wrong, and they're already so unsettled, and their attention so fixed on him, that the disciples are able to not be brought into custody. They're able to flee without being pursued. He succeeds in protecting them that night. And we see it as the stated purpose for which he addressed them like this and came with this boldness. This boldness toward the mob. He is guarding his people as just a small demonstration of his promise to guard all of us to the uttermost. Now, that's true about this, the protection physically that night. But I would caution us, don't let this evasion of arrest fool you in terms of Jesus' purpose. It is their eternal safety that his purpose is consumed with, isn't it? Do you see what he says to Peter in verse 11? Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given to me? The purpose that he has set his gaze on is this. It is to reach out and grab the cup of God's eternal wrath that is rightly due to all of his people because of their sin. His purpose is to grab that cup and to drink it empty. And he's not doing this in order, it's not at all a picture of thwarting the Father's right judgment. The Father has wrath coming and he grabs it and drinks it instead. This is not a good guy, bad guy situation with the Father and the Son. It's clear here, isn't it? This is what the Father has sent him to do. It's the cup, he says, that the Father has given him to drink. And so we just notice again here, as we've noticed so often in this gospel, the utter unity of purpose that's on display between the Father and the Son. And with this display of Christ's purpose to rescue us to the uttermost at such great cost. My friends, this, this is one of those, in John chapter 18, we're not to the cross yet, this is one of those, behold your God, kinds of moments. You can see 
on the very few pages left in your Bible there, uh, in, the John, in the Gospel of John, you can see the beatings, the torture, the crucifixion that is awaiting Jesus. Verse 4 just reiterated that he knew all that would happen to him. But he's also now just verbalized his knowledge that what awaits him is the outpouring of the righteous wrath of God. And the outpouring of that wrath for your sins and mine if we are in Christ. The just punishment earned by your sinful moment of speech or attitude this morning the just punishment earned by my failing that will happen tomorrow afternoon. He just acknowledged that he is about to be punished in full for every sin that every one of his people will ever commit. And in that moment, he stood boldly. He spoke with power. And he drove his enemies to their knees with a word. My friends, behold. Behold your God. Behold your Savior. If this one is the one who is for us, then who can be against us? The boldness that we're seeing from our Lord in this text only makes sense in light of the reality of the situation. The world is dealing here with the one who knows all things. It's dealing with the one who holds all things in his hands. With the one who works all things according to his good purposes. And by the work of this Son of God, God has ransomed people for himself. To be conformed to his image, to worship and serve him, and to do it all forever. This is our King. And he is unstoppable. Be reminded of that this morning. The king you love, the king you follow, the king who leads you, he is unstoppable. There's a great question and answer in the Westminster Catechism about Christ's work as our king, it goes like this. The question is, how does Christ execute the office of a king? And I love the answer. Christ executes the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. It's just beautiful, isn't it? And, it's, and we're watching all of it on display right here. I wonder, do you find in this sight that we're seeing this morning, do you find even more proof that you ought to trust him? To trust him with your life. And I, that certainly encompasses, it certainly includes a verbal acknowledgement of faith. That's important. But at this moment, I'm not thinking about a verbal acknowledgement of trust. When I say, ought not you to trust this man? I mean, you actually ought to take your spouse's medical condition 
Take your child's unbelief. Take your sinful past. Take your present weaknesses. You actually ought to take those things and choose to lay them before his feet and to rest in his goodness and in his care. That's what I mean. Our Lord is committed to our sanctification and our preservation. What has our Lord ever sought to do that he has shown a lack of confidence about? And while we're listening, I'll add one more thing that our Lord calls us to lay at his feet and to walk forward in with trust in our heart. Uh, That would be our ongoing Christian walk from this day to our last day. Our sanctification. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 This is the will of God, your sanctification. My friends, the reality that we've seen here this morning about the boldness of our Lord should make us bold in exactly the right ways. Martin Luther said a lot of things. And he was German, so he was drinking before he wrote some of the things that he wrote and said some of the things that he said. He was prone to being bombastic and therefore easily misunderstood sometimes, misquoted even, sometimes mistranslated. He's writing in German. We're reading him in English. That doesn't always go well. He's accused of saying, among other things, love God and sin boldly. I was reading this week that a a much better translation of what he said, and with some context to it, context is always helpful, Um, he said this in a letter to a friend. Here's what he said, quote, God does not save those who are only, (coughs) let me start that again, God does not save those who are only imaginary sinners. Be a sinner and let your sins be strong. But let your trust in Christ be stronger and rejoice in Christ who is the victor over sin, death, and the world. End quote. That's what he said. I don't think he was telling his friend to feel comfortable with sin. I think he was telling his friend to find enduring rest and boldness in the strength of his king who has won the victory. Christ's boldness to accomplish his purpose gives cause for a boldness of our own as well, because what it means is we have now been subdued by our king. We have been set free to take our frail, weak selves and pursue him fearlessly all the days of our lives. There is nothing left to stop us from always rising and pursuing. Forgiveness is ours in Christ. There is no condemnation now for those who are in Christ Jesus. Of course we will falter and stumble. James already told us that in the book of James, that we all stumble in many ways. We're not gods. But now there is no reason left in the universe not to simply rise again every time we stumble, confess our sins, rejoice in his forgiveness, and pursue him yet more. This is what the Christian life gets to be because our God and King is this bold, conquering one. We're like Reverse zombies who who can't stay down because there is so much life in us. And so we become unstoppable in that way. Not unstoppable in the sense of sinless, unstoppable in our pursuit, in our following after Christ. No accusation of Satan can touch us. 
No sin can overcome the power of the cross. I will never stop. I will never stop my humble pursuit of Christ because Christ has subdued me to himself and I'm alive with his life. What endurance are we capable of if the very categories of guilt and despair no longer even apply to us? What remains is hope and rest and peace and confidence. So Christian, pick up your cross again and go on following him all the days of your life. For he has conquered every enemy who would stand between you and his father. It's the very conclusion that we read about in Romans chapter 8, verse 32. And we'll end with this. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Let's pray together. Father, never is there an end of our reasons to praise you, to thank you, to bring our lives before you. This morning, we thank you for your patience with us. We know we do not marvel at our Savior. your precious son. We do not marvel as we should. We thank you for your patience with us. We thank you for your word and how by it you have put on full display the boldness of our king who conquered us and who has conquered for us. And the resolve of our good shepherd who died to save us. We thank you that you did not send him for people who were themselves worthy of him else we would all be doomed. Thank you for your undeserved mercy and grace, which is ours in Christ Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.